We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, August 12th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hillary Clinton has a podcast, her own podcast. I suggest the way to listen to it is fast forward past the first 20 minutes when she talks all about her cats and hecklers and then just get to the part where she interviews Patton Oswalt. Okay, wrong podcast. But seriously, it was really weird hearing Hillary Clinton say those immortal podcast words. Hello, I'm Hillary Clinton, former first lady, secretary of state, and New York senator. If you're like me, you hate standing in line in the post office. And that's why, wait, wait, Hillary, if you win, you get to appoint the postmaster general. There's something weird about having a likely president host a podcast. You know, like when she says, whether you're wearing a suit or sweats, you spend almost 24 hours a day in your underwear. But instead of making a statement, your underwear is probably boring. That's why I, as president, will take China before the World Trade Organization to force them into more interesting textiles. It just, being president undercuts a lot of what we call the calls to action of the sponsors. But Hillary Clinton really does have a podcast. It could have gone in many directions, I suppose. It could have been one of those fan fiction-y Republican wish fulfillment podcasts. This is a global tell link prepaid call from... I'm Hillary Clinton. An inmate at a Maryland correctional facility. And it's hosted, it's co-hosted by Max Linsky, who's a friend of mine. He hosts the long-form podcast, Very Good. He used to do a Cleveland Browns podcast, Not Kidding. Turns out booking Hillary Clinton, easier than booking Johnny Manziel, also Not Kidding. There was an exchange towards the end of this podcast, which got me to thinking. Max observed that... Talking to her was the highlight of his week, (laughs) but he guessed correctly that it might not have been the highlight of hers. And that has to be true with almost every interaction that Hillary Clinton has. And Hillary talked about that a little bit. I do a bunch of events every day. I don't ever want the people that I'm talking to or with to feel like I'm just going through the motions. It's really important to me that I may do 10 events a day, but For the people that I meet, whether it's talking to you or going to some other event, that will be the one time that they interact with me. And I want to do the best I can to be engaged, to be present. Okay, so those words weren't exactly revelatory, yet it made me realize something. 
that one reason that we as people, as American voters, have a tense relationship with politicians is that on a basic level, they do fall into a category that we're familiar with, the famous, but they do so in a very discomforting way. Yeah, they're supposed to be public servants. Yes, an election is supposed to be a job interview. But really, they're, they're famous people, and their fortunes ebb and flow with the public's relationship to them. That is true for all famous people, for where a celebrity is currency. But for most celebrities, it's only subtext. So when they're doing things designed to make them seem more likable, it's in the service of some other goal, like a charming actress goes on Kimmel or, or raps with uh, James Corden, and they're essentially saying, like me— but they're explicitly saying, go see this movie. And when they do say like me, like Sally Field or Anne Hathaway, it makes them seem needy and it makes us nervous. Politicians are famous people where likability isn't a subtext, it's text. We poll on it. We have a hard time relating to famous people in that way because it makes them seem no better than us, and being better than us is one of the reasons we keep celebrities around. Anyway, none of these issues might come to the fore if there were just two famous people in the world for us to choose from, say, Meryl Streep and Steven Seagal, and Seagal had just strongly hinted that Second Amendment types may wish to murder Meryl Streep. That certainly would short-circuit much of our relationship with celebrity. On the show today, before an Antan Twig spiel, it is the creator, director, and star of the new movie, Don't Think Twice. He's comedian Mike Berbiglia. We're also joined by the producer of that film, Mr. Ira Glass. I do not know exactly what producing this movie about improvers entailed on Ira's part, but I do know that it did make for a really well-miked interview. Listen. Mike Berbiglia is a highly respected stand-up comic, a director. His, uh, his persona, at least, is that of a caring and sensitive person and husband. <laughs> I can't say I haven't really met the man. Although in the new film, Don't Think Twice, I kind of get to know him, or a version of him that could have been. He plays Miles, which, though one or two letters away from Mike is a different guy. Miles is an improver. He has a great troupe, but he never got a break beyond that troupe. Mike Berbiglia stars, directs, acts in it. He produces it, but you know who else produces it? Ira Glass. They're both here. Hi, guys. Hey there. Hey. Ira, I want to start with you. What? Because I know that Berbiglia was an improver as he was a stand-up, and then the stand-up uh, took hold. But what about you with improv? Just a fan? You ever do any? I mean, the, the absolute truth is, yes, I did a little bit of improv <laughs> in, uh, in college. And this I hadn't told Mike, and this actually literally came out in a Q&A we did two weeks ago. I admitted it to him while we were on stage. After working on a movie about improv <laughs> for three years, Ira admits, <laughs> after we've edited it and locked picture and locked sound and have shown it to thousands of people, he says casually, 
I was in an improv group in college. <laughs> and not only was it an improv group, but there's a plot point in our film which exactly mirrors something which happened to me. Um, but but I I feel like I can't I can't reveal it because it's a spoiler and uh, and then we never talked about it it just is in the movie yeah. it was in your script and yeah and then a couple of years ago I took an improv class at the Magnet Theater in New York City and uh, it was a wonderful class I had a great teacher and um and and I took that because I kept getting into situations where I was on stage with comedians and then just had no idea like kind of how to deal in that situation like i was I, I was literally on stage at the bell house in brooklyn with a, on a panel with john glazer amy schumer and eugene merman and we were all fielding questions and trying to do our jobs and i realized like i don't know how to do this at all i was so full of fear i was like i should take an improv class so, so i did did the improv class give you strategies or just confidence it gave strategies on how to just like get to the next moment. So yeah, that that was helpful. But I have to say, like, the thing, I feel like the thing that I learned is that is that the thing that I'm actually good at is editing, and editing is kind of the opposite of improv. In editing, you're constantly looking for what is the full story arc of like what is the thing and how do you shape it into the story. But if you do that in improv, in an improv scene, you actually end up trying to control it too much, and you, all you want to do is get to the next moment. You don't want to be like trying to map out what the whole story of the whole thing should be with everybody in your head. It actually kind of messes you up being being an editor. At least I, I found this, you know, and trying to do improv, which is way more in the moment than that. And Mike, do you think if improv could have been your rocket to success, like stand-up comedy is, would you have rode that rocket? Maybe. I started doing improv when I was a freshman in college. I was cast in an improv group. I think the thing I got most out of it was the was socially. <laughs> I just I loved the people. I before I met the people in my improv group, I was I felt kind of lost. And then I met these kind of theater weirdos, and I was like, oh, these are my favorite ten people, and they became my best friends. And then in retrospect, when I look back on. You know, I veered away from improv over the years into stand-up, but when I look back on making, directing Sleepwalk With Me and directing Don't Think Twice, so much of what I did was based on the training of improv, which is to say the things that are at the beginning of the movie, the rules say yes and don't think, and it's all about the group, are really just principles for collaboration in general and allowed me to do a thing that I, I really wasn't qualified to do. When we made our first movie. When we made our first movie, yeah, Sleepwalk With Me. Mike, tell me about the casting of the movie because the cast was a mix of veteran improvers and good actors. Did you want that, a mix? I did. I, I feel really lucky that there were some people like Keegan-Michael Key and, and Tammy Sager and Chris Gethard who kind of are both of those things. And, and you know, like I love movies like Once and, and The Trip Movies where like you, you're almost fooled by the movie. Like you're almost tricked into believing. Like the moment, like I fin I finished the movie once, I was like googling the hell out of Marquetta and Gover and, and Glenn Hensard and just going like, who are these people? Where are they now? Are they still dating? All that stuff. And uh, I kind of want people to do the same thing with this movie. Like I want to trick people into thinking it's real. But there is, I don't know if it's a problem, you want the best people you can get, but these people are really famous. And to some extent, the question, wow, can Keegan-Michael Key make it in a Saturday Night Live-esque comedy show? I think the answer is yes, because he's Keegan-Michael Key. Well, yes. And that was part of the casting of that character. Certainly. Hello. Hello. My name is Liam Neeson. 
If it's money that you're looking for, I've got none. I've used all of it. The last six times my daughter was taken. I mean, didn't you find it very easy to kidnap her? If one hair on her head is harmed, what, she's dead? I will, I will walk you back on these people all being so famous. They're comedy famous. They're famous to comedy nerds like you and me and Ira. But they're not like bankable box office movie stars which which i'm learning <laughs> <laughs> but 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 um pesca i yeah. think but the thing that you're saying is like oh yeah but then we have gillian up there doing improv gillian who's never done improv and kate mccucci from garfunkel and oates who hadn't done improv before the film like that was totally Birbiglia, that was totally like a uh i'm using your last names because you're both named mike yeah, by the course. way and um it was totally a concern and you had you actually like had the cast come to new york weeks before shooting to do improv like you guys did improv shows you trained with an improv teacher so that the two cast members who had never done improv would would know what to do and we are the commune so everything you see tonight is going to be improvised and this show is really all about you guys so we want to know, has anybody out here had a particularly hard day? And uh, something actually hard, like not like your roommate ate your yogurt. It was still shitty when you ate my yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, go ahead. Uh, I'm looking for an apartment and it sucks. Why, why specifically does it suck? The only one I can afford has the bathroom in the kitchen. Mm. <laughs> Hi, great. Hi. Okay, so as you can see, we have, uh, uh, there's two bedrooms. Lovely. Uh, here is the kitchen. Nice. Uh, there's a beautiful bathroom. Uh, is that a toilet? Yes, that is. The, the, to the toilet is in the kitchen. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, yes. who are they? They, they are... <laughs> They, uh, they are orphans. They are uh, orphans. Did, uh, did, did you say orphans? Yes, the apartment comes with orphans. Oh. Yes, 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 yes. Did you feel a responsibility? This is an examination of a subculture that a lot of people have experience with, and yet I don't know if a proper movie has ever been made about it. So did you feel a responsibility to represent parts of that subculture? Oh, yeah. No, I was really stressed out about it. Um, because in a lot of ways, I feel like it's the world of the UCB. Like, I remember running into Matt Walsh, who's one of the original founders of the Upright Citizens Brigade, whose career I've followed since the 90s when I was in high school and college, and and I, I've been a fan of for so many years. And I ran into him in Los Angeles when we were in pre-production, and and I said, hey, I'm making this movie about improv. <laughs> I never told you this, Ira, but making this movie about the world of improv and the premise is someone gets cast in like a Saturday Night Live show and everyone else doesn't, sort of a big chill time type of comedy set in the world of improv. And I said to him, and my heart was racing. And it almost Aww. never, almost <laughs> never happens. My heart is almost never racing. I was so nervous. And I was like, I'm, I'm a little self-conscious about doing it because, I, you know, you're like sort of the Le LeBron of improv and, and I am not. And, uh, and, and, he, and he said, uh, he said, it's all of our world. It's, uh, it's everybody's story who's huh. in this world. It's not, it's not uh, mine. It's everybody's. Huh. It was really sweet. Yeah. Improv is really interesting in many of the ways you get to. But in the movie, because it's a movie, things come to a head. People make it. People don't make it. There are inflection points. This is part of a plot. You have to have that. But it seems to me that one of the one of the qualities of improv is for a lot of the people who do it, there's maybe not that point where the world gives you the message that it's over. And you could kind of <laughs> do it forever and say, well, I never made it unless you redefine making it. 
Yeah, but that's an important part of everything, I think, is redefining success. I think that in our country right now, there's a sense of that success equals visibility or exposure. But I think that success can be performing in doing front what you of, like. yeah, doing what you like and connecting with an audience of 30 people or 50 people or 100 people in Phoenix or Dallas or, or San Francisco. We've been doing these free improv workshops with our improv coach, Liz Allen, all across the country. And that's part of our message, really, is that the greatest, most provocative, timely, best performed, best written piece of theater in the world can happen on any given night in any of these places. One of the things I actually was excited about in working on the film was was that that I feel like there's lots of films about success, about like, oh, you know, I want to be a star. I got to dance. I got to mm-hmm. sing. And then they should. And they're successful. And, you know, like. And way and, to go, Ray Charles. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and um, I feel like there aren't that many films about failure, about, about the question I think a, a lot of us have if we want to do creative work of just like. Well, you know, I mean, I personally went through like my entire 20s wondering, like, should I get out of radio? Should I get out of journalism? Like, I, I, you know, will I ever do this well enough that I would be proud of it? And and I feel like a lot of people who are trying to do other kinds of creative work, like I feel like we we there's a, there's a period of anxiety of just like should I quit? And I feel like there aren't that many films about that about that decision about like do I have it and should I get out of the business? Should I give up on my dream? Well, which is why I think like. I think there's two reactions to the movie. There's there's a reaction of like, oh, this is a good movie about improv and I enjoyed it. And then there's this movie like ripped my soul out and <laughs> tore it to pieces and then stomped on it, put it back together and put oh, it back no. in is my body. Oh, no, is this like the thing that happened in uh, our first movie, uh, Mike was about, um, was was about, Mike's Mike's first movie was about um, a relationship and, and they end up breaking up and then people would break up after they saw the film, that was the thing we got. People would see it and be like, oh, I guess I really need to say, like, we should quit our relationship. Mike, are you saying that, like, <laughs> you saying... I think it's causing people to second-guess their life decisions. They're, they're like, oh, I gotta, I, do, I gotta get out of comedy. I do think it's doing that. Oh, I'm gonna give up the Or band. reaffirming, or reaffirming. Oh, my... Or reminding them to call their friends. The point is, it's emotional, and I'm getting a lot of emotional <laughs> tweets. <laughs> Another interesting aspect of improv as an art form is it's communal. There are other art forms that are communal, but when a rock band, say, makes it, they sign the whole band. Sure, they might lean on Pete Best to get out and bring in Ringo, but they sign the band, and sometimes they do it, you know, knowing that the bassist isn't as good as the lead guitarist. But with an improv group, they pick away members, and that's got to be extremely frustrating, as your movie portrays. Yeah, I mean, Chris Gethard was on this team, I think the Stepfathers, where while he was on the team, Bobby Moynihan got cast away onto SNL and Zach Woods got cast onto The Office. And so it's like taking two of their star players. I had that the other day. Keegan and I went to see Harold Knight at the Operations Brigade Theater and there's this group called Women and Men and they mm. were so good. And Keegan and I went out for pizza afterwards and I was like, the saddest part for me is... They won't stay together much longer because they're too good. Yeah. People oh, are going really? to pluck away the best members. Huh. And and the other sad part, and I, I read an interview, I think your wife pointed this out to you, that you'll see a group and they're all equally talented and some become stars. Like you see an old picture of at Second City. This is Steve Carell when he's, you know, 21. This is Steve yeah. Colbert when he's 21. Here's a guy that if you're a comedy nerd, you know he's been in stuff. And here's a guy who's maybe selling mattresses now. And it's not that the other... Okay, maybe I picked two of the most talented people in the world, but it's not that the other two guys aren't talented. Oh my God. And that that reminds me of a 
of a thing. When I was in high school, I came to New York City to visit my sister Gina. She took me to the comic strip live in the Upper East Side, and I saw Jeffrey Ross and uh, David Tell and and uh, Greg Giraldo, like all these great. This is all in one show. Yeah, yeah, because what? it was like it was like Todd Barry. Well, because that, you know, it was in the 90s. It was before all these people had sort of made it. And so right. they're just doing spots. They're just doing 10-minute spots around town. And then and one the comic comedian, strip was the club. Yeah. That's like when yeah. the improv had died. And Lucian yeah, and was it, putting on great shows. Yep. That's right. And uh, and there was a comedian, I won't say who, who killed and was my favorite comedian of the night, who years later I would see handing out flyers for a mattress store in Chinatown. Really? Literally? Real. Literally. Well, it's okay. I didn't, I didn't even think of it until just now when he said the mattress thing. Well, wow. it's okay because now that guy has a podcast and he's doing ads for Casper mattresses. So it all comes full circle. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, this was great. Uh, we could talk forever. Ira Glass produced and Mike Birbiglia wrote stars, directs. Don't think twice. Look, I mean, any we could cite Rotten Tomatoes, and there's definitely a downside to the binary of fresh or rotten, but it's 97% fresh. So congratulations. People like this movie. We appreciate people see it in the theaters because then if you do, we'll get to make another movie. Is that how it works? That Honestly, it is. I mean, all these movies in, in indie houses, they're all based on the premise that they're made with you know a little bit of money, a ton of heart. And if people go see them, those filmmakers will get to make another movie. It's even crueler than that, actually, um, Pesca. That, that like it's been explained by the distributors that like if people don't come in the first couple of weeks, other theaters won't pick it up. So mm-hmm. like if people were just like, oh, I'm going to see that like later this summer, that means that we won't get into as many theaters. It's all very, it's very uh, this is, cutthroat. This is a good point. I think because maybe in our world, in my world, I'm like, oh, that's that was released this week and so was uh, Kevin Spacey Turns Into a Cat movie. No, they're two very different movies. And if you have a chance to see this, this really helps a movie that you just might wind up wanting to help as opposed to Kevin Spacey and a cat. That That's already passed. Good to talk to you guys. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, now streaming only on Hulu. And now the spiel. Christopher Squire is dead. Teddy Roosevelt, not Teddy Kennedy, was shot while running on the Bull Moose ticket. The 12th, not 25th Amendment, deals with presidential succession. Drowning pool, not system of a down, recorded when the bodies hit the floor. This strange collection of facts means that either I have eschewed segues altogether or that it's an Antan twig. Our name for the three-week period where the gist issues corrections and awards lopstars to our greatest listeners of this three-week period. Now, a meta-correction about this Antan Twig. It has been more than three weeks. Here is my Antan Twig philosophy. If I have a spiel in my heart, I spiel it, even if the schedule says Antan Twig. I know this knocks the Antan Twigs out of rotation, but I made up the word. I can play fast and loose with it. Although I realize at some point it does lose its meaning. 
An antan twig becomes kind of like nonplussed. All right, back to Drowning Pool. I was looking up uh, who was Drowning Pool. Much less, much less successful than System of a Down. Drowning Pool belongs to a genre known as new metal, spelled N-U metal. And Wikipedia says not to be confused with mu metal. Mu metal. I'm like, my God, metal has so many subgenres. So I looked up mu metal, and it says mu metal is a nickel iron soft magnate alloy with a very high permeability suitable for shielding sensitive electronic equipment against low static or low frequency magnetic fields. I'm like, oh, it has nothing to do with music at all, except that part about magnetic fields. Another correction sent in by Don Turner calls himself DW Turner. Talking about when uh, I was talking about presidential assassins, and I think I may have said Charles Gateau was an attempted assassin. Well, he was also a successful assassin. wasn't not an attempted assassin. But yes, good point. Charles Gateau actually did the deed against Garfield. And I know this because it was in the musical Assassins. Charlie Gateau drew a crowd to his trial. Led them in prayer Said I killed Garfield, I'll make no denial I was just acting for someone up there I killed Garfield, not just I attempted to kill Garfield. A few people, including Corey Nislow, wrote in about this snippet, this audio we played of Russian swimmer Yulia Ifimova. Like, if Vlada say, like, tomorrow, then some... Stuff like yogurt or L-carnitine or, I don't know, protein. Now, the official translation was, like if WADA say, like tomorrow, stop yogurt or nicotine or, I don't know, protein. But I said, to me, it did not sound like she said nicotine. It sounded like something, I don't know, air conditioning. But Corey and a bunch of others wrote in, trained just listeners, made clear what she was saying. L-carnitine. L-carnitine is an over-the-counter supplement that a lot of athletes do take. It is legal. It might not do anything. And also, the point is that swimming and nicotine do not match. Well, maybe the patch. And now, on to our lobstar of the Antan twig, which, in awarding, we did not rely on any unnatural supplements. Well, maybe one, earnestness. I get nice emails from time to time, but this one sent in by Bryn Babbitt struck a chord. She writes that she's a 20-year-old college student who, a couple of years ago, was not into politics or current affairs. She was disillusioned by it all. But then she heard the gist. She listened to the gist. She got into civic responsibility. Direct quote. Listening to the show, quote, grew into me giving a lot of shits about the topics you spoke on. A feeling of sense of importance in being connected. Look, Bryn, that was not our purpose. That is a heavy responsibility. We just want to talk about flags and bears and why Trump might have a somewhat incoherent philosophy. But if that's what you get out of it, I can't stop you. Bryn goes on. She writes about how a relative, a relative on her mother's side, one generation older than Bryn, a maternal relative, comes to visit her college in Colorado and they go out for edibles. So at this point, I'm saying to myself, oh, kids these days with their phrases, we used to just say they go out for lunch. But no, no, she means the pot type of edibles. And she consumes these edibles and she gets all paranoid and anxious. But then she wakes up still high and talking her down from her anxiety is the gist. And this 
put me in the mind of that great Dan Aykroyd sketch where he played President Carter on Saturday Night Live, and I get to be Dan Aykroyd in this situation. Now, were those pills, were they barrel-shaped? All right, you took some orange sunshine. Just listen. Everything's going to be fine. You're very, very high right now. You're probably going to be that way for five hours. Try taking some vitamin B complex, vitamin C complex. If you have a beer, go ahead and drink it. And just remember, Bryn, you are a living organism on this planet and you are very safe. You've just taken a heavy drug. Relax. Stay inside. Listen to a podcast. Do you have a podcast? Very good. So Bryn Babbitt, you are no longer just a favorite Uncle Remus character. You are the lobster of this Antan twig. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson wouldn't mind a presidential decree against omnidirectional microphones in noisy conference rooms. Steve Lichtai supports constitutional amendments making executive producer of Slate Podcasts a lifetime appointment. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, thinks an executive action could make for recurring royalties for every explicit language warning issued. The gist. We support legislation to make it a federal crime to give a podcast a one-star review, which lingers for all time just because that one episode didn't post on time. Disproportionate response. Block the box. Oomperu, um, depperu, du peru, and thanks for listening.